This episode of this podcast is making me thirsty. It's brought to you by Vandalay Industries for all your latex needs. Welcome to this podcast is making me thirsty. The number one destination for Seinfeld fans. Do us a solid. Check out our YouTube channel. This podcast is making me thirsty. Subscribe. Rate and review us on iTunes. If you dig it, please pass it on. Check out our website, SeinfeldPodcast.com. Email us at this podcast is making me thirsty at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at this thirsty. Follow us on Instagram at this thirsty. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. This podcast is making me thirsty. Welcome to this podcast is making me thirsty. The number one destination for Seinfeld fans. This episode 130. We're very excited for today's guest. He's a writer, producer, and comedian. He's an acclaimed TV and film executive who has led several production companies, including the Howard Stern Production Company, Sony BMG Music Entertainment, the FS Network, Viacom, and MTV Networks. He co-created the best damn sports show, period. He's written for Son of the Beach and Living Color and Saturday Night Live and was a production assistant for The Late Show with David Letterman. And of course, he was a key executive at NBC responsible for Seinfeld's development and one of the key network champions who ultimately greenlit the show. Please welcome Jeremiah Bosgang. Jeremiah, thanks for joining. Hey, guys. Thanks. Thanks for having me. How about that intro, Jeremiah? I know. It's all downhill. It's all yeah, people are going to be, what the, f- <laughs> how is it possible? So a ton to get to, but take us back July 5th, 1989, the Seinfeld Chronicles airs. I mean, just how'd you get the role? Like, how'd you get connected with Rick Ludwin? Just kind of take us a little before 89 on how that whole situation came about. Sure. Um, so, um, Rick Ludwin, who, you know, um, of blessed memories, just was really my first mentor and really gave me this huge break. Um, what happened was I had moved to L.A., um, you know, this wannabe, a wannabe writer, performer. Um, I had been in living in New York for several years prior, studying acting and taking acting classes and working in um, some, uh, you know, uh, comedy clubs, second tier comedy clubs. And um, and I went out to L.A. just to kind of see I had friends who had made the, the journey out there from New York before me and who had successfully landed jobs writing for television and they were making really good money. And they had health benefits and everything. So I thought, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it, too. And I rode my motorcycle out to L.A. And um, I was just doing odd jobs that, you know, the kind of stuff that um, wannabe actor writers do, uh, uh, you know, short of waiting tables. I did that. But I was also um, installing high-end audiovisual systems in people's homes. Back then, a high-end system was were these huge projection TVs. You guys right, might be too right. young to remember, but they were like these, like, like the size of three huge uh, um, bookcases. Right. So, and they would have like a rear projection. Anyway, I would install those and put in sound systems because I was kind of nerdy and I did stuff like that. And, you know, who are the people in LA who are getting these 
high-end systems. A lot of them work in the entertainment business. And one of them was this really, really good guy who became a good friend of mine. Um, he, his name was Larry Little, and he was uh, a senior executive at Warner Brothers. And he kind of took a liking to me and he'd invite me to parties at his house. And, you know, I'd, I'd be meeting all these different like executives and agents and stuff. And, uh, and I met a guy at this party, a friend of Larry's. Uh, who became a very influential person in my life, a, a, a writer named Jim Stein, really funny writer who you mentioned Son of the Beach. Jim was one of the three guys who uh, co-created Son of the Beach with Tim Stack and Dave Morgison. That would be years later. But at this point, I just met Jim and, and I thought, and he was a, a, an executive producer, a showrunner. And so I, you know, I, I, I begged him if he would look at one of my spec scripts I think I had um, it's the Gary Shandling show spec script. And so he, he took it and, and, and like a week later or something, I get a phone call from Jim and he's like, Hey, I read your script. And like, as you guys know, the vast majority of people offer to read things or do things. You never hear from them again, but Jim really did read. He goes, yeah, I thought your script was pretty good. And he said, have you ever thought about becoming an executive? And I was like, <laughs> you know, is that like kind of a left-handed compliment? <laughs> you know, what is it? You know, oh, was my writing that bad that, you know, the best? But no. And the reason he asked was he was really good friends, close friends with Rick Ludwin. And he said, there's this executive at NBC who works in at the time, as you said, Chris, this is late 80s. It was before real the real advent of reality television. Um, when any of those shows that were really the, the um, forerunners to reality shows, things like Unsolved Mysteries on NBC, that um, it, it involved some reenactments and, and some writing, things, things like that were really the earliest stages before really even the real world was a hit on MTV. Anyway, that was primarily Rick's area at NBC where these uh, and it plays into directly into Seinfeld and the development of Seinfeld. But he was involved in doing specials, variety shows. He did all of the Bob Hope specials. He, and, and, and he did, um, you know, what was the precursor to alternative programming. Anyway, Jim thought that Rick might like me. And, um, and so he introduced us and, um, and yeah, and that's how I got to meet Rick Ludwin. I don't know if I'm rambling on too much. You guys have to cut me off if I'm boring you with stuff. But it was funny. I'll, I'll tell you just like a really quick story. So I was like this actor wannabe, right? And I'm, all of a sudden, I have this interview with an NBC executive. I wasn't even really sure what an NBC executive did or I, other than, you know, they were like, <laughs> you know, powerful guys or something. And so I didn't know what I was going to wear. To the, I didn't have a, a suit or even a tie. So I borrowed a sport coat from my friend, my roommate, that didn't even fit me. He was like 30 pounds heavier than me. So it looked like my dad's sport coat. And I went to a um, department store in LA. And I, this is a little tip for the for viewers, if they're ever, your viewers, if they're ever in this situation. I bought a necktie, but I didn't cut the price tag off. I just tied the tie and I tucked the price tag in like between my buttons. So then <laughs> after the interview, Take the tie back, full refund. Nice. Um, Been there, done that, Jeremy. Have you literally yeah. done that same thing? Oh, that's so <laughs> yeah. funny. That's so, great. I mean, that was like the interview with Rick Ludwin. I'm wearing this tie with a price tag and my roommate's sport coat, but he was such a really great 
unpretentious, down-to-earth guy. And um, and he liked some of my background. Like you mentioned, I, I had been a student intern. Actually, Tony, not to correct you, but it wasn't um, Late Show with David Letterman. That was the CBS version. Oh, right, I was on yeah, Late yeah. Night with David right, Letterman, right, yeah, yeah. which was the first NBC in, incarnation of that show, of that, that franchise. And so... You know, Rick liked that I worked in late night. That was also his area. He right. was, and, and at the time, NBC was the only network that really had a late night schedule. They had the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Then they had uh, uh, a later, they had a show that followed um, Carson, which was late night with David Letterman. And then they had Saturday Night Live on Saturday night. So they really had a schedule. The other networks at the time, now, of course, they're all in the late uh, late night game, but at the time they didn't really have it. So Rick was very unique in that position. And, and he liked that I had done an internship at late night with David Letterman. And he liked that when I was in college, I, I toured with, um, second city. And so he thought, Oh, this guy's like a quirky choice. I think that's what he was thinking. And, and that's why he, um, how I met him. And I think why he gave me the opportunity. Oh man, that's incredible. Um, so, so, so when did, you know, they they recreate the show within the show in season four of Seinfeld, right? Where where your character, we'll get to it later. We know that you yeah. actually auditioned for it, but you know, you you and Rick are, are basically you know going up to Jerry and saying, "Here's our card," right? How did it actually happen? Like, when did when was Seinfeld like finally presented to you and Rick, where it was like, you know, we have this show, or we're going to do a show, or how did that kind of those first conversations kind of? Start? So really, I, I'm when I talk about Rick or me, I, I just want to be really really clear. It was all Rick. Rick Ludwin is the executive of all any executive, whether it was an executive at NBC or an executive at the studio, which was Castle Rock. And there were some very talented, influential executives who were really supportive of the show and really helped it. But Rick Ludwin is in a separate category. So I, I just... I just don't want to be disingenuous by saying, oh, well, Rick and I were, you know, it wasn't like that. Rick was, I was his, you know, water boy, you know, and he really was the the guy, the, the, the really the guy behind it. But in any event, um, the earliest uh, um, moves with that uh, for uh, in development, in the development world for what would become Seinfeld happened before I was even at NBC, a year before. So one of the things that at the time network executives would do, there'd be this annual retreat where all the development executives, whether they worked in comedy development, drama development, uh, movies and miniseries, which were a big uh, day, um, uh, program category back then, not as much now. And then Rick's area of alternative programming would go on this retreat and people would talk about, you know, and pitch to the head of, all programming, it might be um, at NBC. Ultimately, at the time, it was Brandon Tartikoff, but Warren Littlefield, of course, was very senior there, um, as was another uh, development executive, Perry Simon. And people would pitch there. I just, well, I think we should do, you know, a comedy set in, you know, a, uh, um, a, a, gar a garage, a taxi garage or, you know, something and it was Rick Ludwin who stood stood at that meeting and he said, look, there's this young comedian who's been on Carson a number of times. I've been tracking him. He's did an HBO at the time, the HBO Young Comedian Special. That was a huge franchise and a real 
watermark for a comedian. And Jerry had done that. And he held up some clippings or whatever. I wasn't at the meeting, but I've heard it from many sources. And he said, this guy, Jerry Seinfeld, this guy is really interesting and we should be doing something. And you have to understand a little bit of the dynamic, the politics of net network development at the time. Rick's area, as much as I love Rick and respect him, but that area at the time, specials, variety, and late night programming, it was really the stepchild um, area to the, the meat and potatoes, the, the real prestige areas of programming development back in those late 80s and 90s were comedy and drama. Those were where the real hits would come from. And again, this was before, you know, reality shows, you know, Biggest Loser, Survivor, et cetera. The, 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 the play field has changed drastically since then. But so there was a little bit of dismissiveness uh, towards Rick and me and, and our area that like, you know, guys, leave the, you guys, you do the Bob Hope specials. So you guys, you guys stick with, you know, super bloopers, bloopers and practical jokes. Don't, <laughs> Don't step into these other areas. But well, Jeremiah, yeah, just I, I don't mean to cut you off there, but that's a good point. So dramas and comedy. So, you know, the L.A. Laws and the Cosby Show, et cetera. Did Rick greenlight any other uh, sitcoms through this late night or Seinfeld was no, the first? No, no. And Seinfeld, when 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 Rick first pitched, you know, and wanted to develop it, um, the comedy development people, um, they, and you know, everybody has their own taste and, and judgment and they had hit shows and, uh, and, and really smart things that they did. And they, they developed the comedy development people at that time developed friends, which became, you know, a mega gargantuan hit. So, you know, people have different sensibilities, but, um, but Rick was like, screw it. I'm going to take some of my monies, my development funds that I have in um, specials. And you guys probably know this story because you're so, you know, the Seinfeld history so well. And I'm going to create four half hour specials, specials slash episodes of this show using my money. And I'm going to do it. And at the time, the truth is, and you guys will remember this if you remember those early episodes of Seinfeld, it was a hybrid show. What Seinfeld was in the early days, it was a combination of Jerry's stand-up comedy. There'd be these initially three pods of stand-up at the beginning, middle, and end of the show. And the idea was that there would be this world created behind him of his friends and his world. So you'd see where he got his ideas for his stand-up. So if he was doing some stand-up about, you know, how much do you tip a guy who delivers your blotity blah, you know, and he would do his stand-up and then you fade into some vignettes and scenes with these, what were supposed to be supporting characters to show basically the, you know, in his fictitious life, how Jerry came up with those ideas. So it wasn't a conventional half hour scripted show in that sense. It evolved in success. Those characters, you know, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Michael Richards, and Jason Alexander, they became so popular. And the dynamic that Jerry had with them and the stories that Larry, David would oversee became so, were such a unique voice and so interesting that the pods of stand-up sort of fell away. It, it moved from having three to two to none. And they just felt like, no, we're just going to now tell stories using these characters. So that's a little bit of the how in the early, early days, 
the show evolved. Uh, I don't know, Chris, if I answered your question. Yeah, I think no. I just sort of rambled off. That was great. And, you know, to your point, like just to kind of back up, I mean, you went, you kind of took that, the, 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 the stand up going away, right? Like you mentioned, or, or kind of the show evolving, right? But, but at, at the early part, right, that first four episodes when the, the stand-up was still there and, um, you know, the, the characters were still developing, um, you know, we call, you know, we'll call it season one, right, for the right. four episodes after yeah. the pilot. Um, right. wh- what, how much of that was Ludwin's vision, Jerry's vision, Larry's vision, to, to your knowledge, like from, from kind of where you were sitting, wh- who was... Who presented that idea that you just mentioned that it's going to be Jerry going through his stand-up life and how he gets his ideas? Was that Jerry and Larry coming to the table with that? Or was that Ludwin saying, here's what I think you should do? Or was it a combination? Or, you know, do you remember anything around that? Yeah, I remember it vividly, yes. And and it was it was very clearly. It all of the creative choices were Larry and Jerry. Everything about the direction of the thing. I shouldn't say everything. There were some times later in seasons where the network tried to influence the show in ways that ultimately didn't work out. Um, Notably where Jerry and Elaine actually, uh, you know, have a relationship, you know, or a physical relationship. And, and, you know, that, that was something NBC was pushing for, not Rick Ludwin, others at NBC. Oh, we think this would be good. It didn't work. And, and they reversed. That was, one notable time when it wasn't Larry or, or Jerry's idea. The creative was Larry and Jerry. To Rick Ludwin's credit, that, that dynamic even existed. The truth is, in the vast, vast majority, and guys, you mentioned my, uh, my humble uh, background. I've worked, I've been fired by almost every major network and studio you can mention. So I've, I've seen a lot of different things. The vast majority of executives have a very heavy hand. They they think they know best. They give notes. And in some cases, they do. Sometimes there are considerations that a network executive would be uniquely positioned to know. And sometimes they just have good taste. And sometimes they... But not always. In fact, I think that would be a generous characterization of it. What Rick Ludwin's strength was as an executive was... He believed in Jerry and Larry, but mostly Jerry was the one he really, he really liked. And Larry is his own genius, but, and he, he felt like, look, who am I ultimately? We can give notes. You know, Jeremiah, you and I can give notes on scripts. And we did. We gave notes on like the Chinese restaurant. And I can tell you stories, but, you know, and it's like, who the fuck are these guys for us to be telling ultimately? You know, Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld, the irony was, even if at that time they weren't the Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld they are today, they were those people. They did have those instincts and and, right. and abilities. And so who are we to tell them, oh, we think this is the direction, the character. So we tried to, Rick and I, me following Rick's lead, tried to really just support them as best we could, even in times when we didn't agree with them. And in retrospect, the Chinese restaurant's a great example. We didn't get that episode. Rick and I did not understand it. And we were really concerned. We had some real uh, conversations with uh, Jerry and Larry and the Castle Rock executives uh, where we talked about our concerns, uh, misguided, though they all, history has shown, they all were. But I, not to pat ourselves on the back, but I would say 
that what, what was different about Rick Ludwin and what I learned from him and what I tried to do in my own career as an executive was to uh, entrust the creatives that you're hiring and you're paying that the, the, the choices they're making, it's their vision for the show. And yes, the network is spending a lot of money and, and to a, a very real extent, network executives careers can be on the line. If you make, you take too many um, swings that mit, that miss, you know, you're not going to be an executive at that place for long. And if you have a hit, you can, it can be very good for the executive as well as the creative team, but really it, it, it's a, it's a judgment about empowerment. And so in answer to your question, if I, not to beat a dead horse, but it was Jerry and Larry leading the charge creatively and Rick Ludwin consistently. And if you would, if you were to ask, I believe if you were to ask Jerry Seinfeld or Larry David, that same question, they would say the thing about Rick Ludwin was um, he consistently supported us. Funnily enough, though, Larry and Jerry really didn't know any better. Because it's not like at the time they were these grizzled, right. you know, sitcom writers who, ah, we work through so many different fucking executives and they all give <laughs> shitty notes and you got to list. They didn't know any better. Larry David did not know how good he had it, how big a supporter and great a supporter he had in Rick Ludwin that he did. Yeah. And um, that and I think now Larry appreciates it, I, I believe. But at the time, I don't think just because they they didn't know Larry had never run. A television show at that time. By the way, those first episodes. I'm sorry. I'm I'm just talking over you oh, guys. No, it's great. I should shut up and let you ask something. But it's great. Uh, you know, in the beginning, there was a, a showrunner, an executive producer over Larry David because Larry David wasn't a quote unquote network approved, which is a term used network approved showrunner. He had never been an executive producer, and he was a friend of La of Jerry's. In answer to an earlier question, when you said, "How did it evolve?" Rick Ludwin had a meeting. This is before my time, but I know it to be true. Met with Jerry Seinfeld and his manager, George Shapiro. And he said, look, I, I really am a fan, Jerry. I really like it. What would you like to do? That was Rick's approach. Not like, here's this idea I have for you. You run an ice cream shop. And that's the way a lot of other executives approach it. They have concepts and then they try to fit the talent into those concepts. And that can often work. But Rick was like, look, I believe in you. What do you want to do? And Larry, uh, Jerry had not really even thought about it at the time. He was like, I don't know. Let me, I'm going to go. Let me think about it. And he went and he talked to his friend, Larry David. And he said, you know, if we had a show, probably in a place like Monk's is where they probably sat and talked about it. what would it be? And, you know, they came up with this idea that show about nothing, which is, a little bit of BS, I think, to talk, say, because it always is about something, however, you know, non-existential it is. But, and it was their idea for this is how the show would evolve. This is what it would be. And they brought that, um, uh, brought that to Rick. And, um, and he said, okay, let's, let's, let's see if we could do it. And, and uh, George Shapiro, um, I think his, he's related somehow to Carl Reiner. And Carl's son, Rob Reiner, the right. famous actor director, Castle Rock. Say again. He founded Castle Rock, right? Yes. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah um, um, I'm sorry, I, I lost my train of thought. 
Um, so uh, Rob Reiner was one of the, the four partners, founding partners of Castle Rock. And, um, and so George said, you know, ah, oh, you know, my cousin or something, his son has this production company, they're, they're creative, it's new, let's bring them in. And that's how Castle Rock got involved in um, being the production, the studio of choice. It wasn't one of the big powerhouse, you know, Paramount, Universal, 20th Television, those studios didn't bring their comedy ideas to Rick Ludwin or they would be going to the comedy development team. Um, okay. So it, it was this little um, this little production company that like totally, you know, it was a, the, the biggest hit imaginable for them too. Yeah. And, and you just mentioned the vision of Jerry. We talked to Matt Goldman, who, who was a writer early on. Of course. And I, he told Matt us great. Yeah, he told us this great story that that you know. Uh, I'm curious if you have a similar story. Maybe you even were a part of this one, where basically um, an exec, you know, was giving Jerry notes uh, on a show, the next show, or how he wanted the next show to go. And and Jerry basically told him like, "I'm doing the show my way, and if you don't like it, I'll just leave." Like basically, he just you know had his stand up and was like stood up to this guy and just said, "Listen, it's my vision. We're going to do it this way." And he also mentioned the Larry David to your point before about not being exec, you know, approved. Uh, you know, at this point, Larry David wasn't even allowed in these meetings, apparently, because he was too volatile. Uh, what, what can kind of you tell us about that with Jerry's kind of vision and standing up to, to the execs and then kind of Larry just being, like you said, kind of off to the side, like just in a new world and kind of like, you know, not even dealing with the execs at all. Like, that's an interesting dynamic. I, I love. Yeah. To your- yeah. So I don't remember. Um, I, I- I don't remember that exactly. I hope Matt was not thinking, yeah, it was this douchebag executive Jeremiah Boskang and, and Jerry really put him in his place. I hope he wasn't thinking of me because, um, but no, I don't think it was me. I'm pretty sure it wasn't. I think but, it was the uh, president is what he, is what he said. Oh, the president oh, oh, wow. Well, that might've come at a, a, a later time in the early days. Um, <clears throat> even though, um, you know, I don't think anybody, Larry David, never thought the show was going to go beyond four episodes or something. He just thought it was this weird thing he was helping Jerry with. And they moved back to New York and, and, and it would be over. I remember when the show got picked up um, for, as you were saying, like season two, um, I remember, I, I, I think that um, to, uh, to woo um, Larry, Jerry bought Larry a car. Uh, in LA to, to, to kind of say, Hey, come on, come back and, and do this. I think he got him like a, some kind of like a Lexus or something. I, I could be mistaken, but I have a memory of that somehow, but there was definitely a feeling and even Jerry, maybe not like with a swagger to it, but like, look, I have a career. I, I make a really great living doing something I love in stand up comedy. I don't need, you know, the sitcom to work if it, if it can work and be something that I don't feel creatively compromised that I actually enjoy. Great but it doesn't have to go for four seasons or something, you know, and um, you know, although, you know, the money would be great. That wasn't what was motivating those guys. They were really wanting to do something that they would want to watch and that they would, that they would find funny um, and, and engaging. And so uh, yes, Larry in the early days, I think, you know, he, he, he could be difficult. um, And um, but he could also be really, really good guy. I haven't seen him in years, but he, he's, he was he, back then he was a good guy. And I think he's softened even more with the, his subsequent, not only the sign, the gargantuan Seinfeld success, but then he, he like, you know, does it again with curb. I mean, so, you know, that kind of success, I think, um, softens somebody who, uh, 
you know, might be otherwise feeling resentful at times, or, you know, Larry was so famous for like yelling at an audience or they didn't get what he now knows how, you know, it's, it's um, been confirmed so many times over how great he is by so many that I think that's probably softened him in any event. Yes. Um, it was difficult. And, and uh, in the beginning, because as creative as the guys were and are, they didn't have like some of the basic um, television development vocabulary, just working on a certain schedule and having to turn things around in a certain time frame and rewrite, you know, very mechanical skills, but still important to uh, if you're not just doing a four part special, if you have a weekly show, you need to really be on a schedule. And so that that's a skill that's developed that somebody develops out uh, as opposed to your, your own sensibility and taste judgment, which you either have or don't. So clearly the guys developed it well over the years, <clears throat> but maybe in the beginning there might've been some challenge to it. I yeah. And speaking of the beginning, you touched on this. I, I mean, Ludwin gets a ton, a ton of credit for sure. But, and you mentioned Castle Rock. So like the, the players, right? There's Ludwin, there's, there's Warren Littlefield who was supposed, who was supposedly Russell, uh, Brandon Tartikoff, of course, you had Glenn Padnick at, at Castle Rock, like, so all these guys in a room, like, and then I'm always thinking about, I, I heard that um, someone told us that Warren Littlefield stepped in and said, Michael Richards has to be Kramer. We, we, we can't, we can't hire anyone else. I'm like, what do you remember about those early days on casting? Right? Like, like, Hey, is Jason Alexander, the guy, is that the guy we envisioned for this? Like you, you had to be in the room, right. With, with kind of those conversations uh, with Hirschfeld and all these guys. Yeah. Um, um, so the cast was set, you know, um, Jerry, Jason, Julia, and Michael, before I came, came on, they, they were in that, as you relate, talked about the, the pilot, the first, the first episode. And that was before, um, I, I was there and, um, you know, so I, I can't say who said what or, 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 or didn't, uh, I can tell you as, incredibly talented as Warren Littlefield is. And he had an amazing career as an executive at NBC. And then, and now he's like this preeminent producer of like hit so many hit shows and top shelf dramas and things. But in all candor, Warren wasn't as supportive of Seinfeld in those early days. And I think he'd cop to this too, if, if you put him right on the spot. Um, certainly not to the, the way Rick was. If anything, there was a bit of uh, internal competition between um, the conventional development teams that Warren oversaw and Rick and Rick's area, Seinfeld specifically. It was it was never really taken too seriously internally at NBC in the early stages. It was always this kind of like, oh yeah, that's like the Rick and Jeremiah's thing, but it wasn't the the real, there was a show at the time to give you an example. I don't know if you remember the darling of the development teams headed up by Warren was a show called wings. Wings. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and now in all fairness to, to Warren and those people, <laughs> that show came from Paramount. Paramount was the producer of cheers, which was the gargantuan right. hit for NBC at that time, Thursday nights, at eight o'clock 
I think it was eight o'clock. No, nine o'clock was Cheers. Eight o'clock, I think, was Cosby. Anyway, so in their um, renewal negotiations for Cheers to come back for whatever it was, the eighth season, ninth season, uh, Paramount had tremendous leverage. And one of the things they negotiated for, this is like a little behind the scenes thing, was that they would have first crack at the time slot following Cheers, that a show they developed would get that plum lead in of Cheers. And the show that they developed and that NBC was betting on and that was developed by some former Cheers writer producers or people with a real pedigree, really smart, talented, funny people, was this show Wings. And and, and then Rick and I were like the little um, uh, David to that Goliath of like saying, well, what, what, could, could, could Seinfeld have a shot coming out of, is there any chance? Like we'd be at the scheduling meetings and even Brandon would be rolling his up, Brandon Tartikoff, who was a, a real supporter of Seinfeld. But he'd kind of be rolling his eyes like, guys, you got to be kidding me. You know, you're at the big boy table now. No, Seinfeld is it's, it's going to be like wings or something some other show that's developed by Emmy award-winning writer producers, not some weird guy from New York that no one's ever heard of Larry David, you know, it's going to be by right. these, these people with this, you know, Ivy league pedigree of television writing. And, um, and Warren was in that camp. So, so I just, I'm, I'm not trying to take anything away from anybody, but just to set the record straight now as Seinfeld did, eventually get those shots. And it started to show it had traction. Brandon Tartikoff is the one who saw that and, and allowed for it to be scheduled and get a number of runs on those Thursday nights, which were critical to exposing it to an audience and showing that it could retain that um, cheers lead in. And, and so, and then, you know, the rest is history, as we say. And then of course, when Brandon left and Warren became the president of NBC, he was a staunch supporter of Seinfeld and, and he believed in it. And, um, but just in those early days, it was a little different dynamic. Yeah. We spoke with uh, Preston Beckman, who was uh, the lead of, you know, him, <laughs> the of lead course. of scheduling. Um, and he had some great stories about that and wings. And he, yeah, he told that similar story, I think about Paramount. Um, we'd love to, you mentioned a Chinese restaurant, I'd love to hear some other examples. You know, one of our favorite episodes, actually our favorite episode of all time, not many's, is the phone message um, where, you know, coffee's not coffee, coffee's not. Anyway, um, that episode actually replaced The Bet, which was the Larry Charles episode um, written about a gun. What, do you remember that episode? Because I know it was close to being produced. And then I know, uh, I don't know who pulled it exactly, if that was... Uh, you with Ludwin or, or or what went on there, but would love to hear if not I, that story, any other, any other ways you were critical of a script or anything like that. We'd love to hear. Sure. I don't remember exactly. I, I don't believe that it was Rick or certainly not me. I wasn't in a position to pull anything anyway, but um, I don't believe it was us. We may have uh, talked about our reservations about the, the, an episode like being too dark or, you know, or something. But again, I really do. I'm not just saying this. I really do recall that we would say, hey, guys, ultimately, it's your decision, you know, what you want to do and what you want to go with it. And that plays right into Chinese restaurant, which I do remember much more clearly. Um, so it was at a critical time that that episode was written 
and you guys probably remember better than me. What episode number was that? Do you know a fans? 16. I so it was like at the 17. point where I remember we were waiting. We Every episode, when a show is in that early stage, every episode is so delicate in terms of the ratings it produces because they're all these different people, Preston Beckman and research groups and uh, research teams, and they're analyzing the different demographics of the episode. And it went up a, a tenth of a point here. It dropped off a fraction of a point there. And those are those decisions it, it really... Um, bear heavily on the ultimate decision that the the network president at the time, Brandon Tartikoff or Warren Littlefield makes about a show's renewal or where it goes on the schedule. They take all these things into consideration. And so as the development person of the show, you're very protective and wanting to obviously get the best ratings you can and not do things that could hurt. And when Rick and I read the Chinese restaurant, we got this first draft. It was like, it was What's the story? <laughs> there's no story here. There's nothing. There's no, there's no, nothing really, nothing really does happen in that episode. If anything, that was an episode that was fair to say nothing happens. The whole thing is in real time waiting for a table. And there's the great banter and, and character driven um, dialogue between the, the cast, but it, it's not, it, it was so, uh, so different. Um, we didn't get it. We didn't see it. And we were very concerned in the context I, I just gave about ratings that like, oh my God, if this thing, you know, this is going to be a death knell to the show. I mean, if, I mean, if you, if you, if you, if you do an episode that's really weak and our colleagues at the network, you know, run it through all these metrics and, and stuff, and it doesn't hold up, um, it could really be like, no, you, that was a big miss and we can't afford to take big misses like that. And so I remember one, one memory I have, and it was just Rick and me. We had got the, so the way it would work is we'd get the script, uh, a, a version of the script, the, the first draft, the network, we, we would read it. Then we would go to a table reading <laughs> at the studio. The cast would be sitting around as I'm sure, you know, like a big table and you'd have all the department heads, wardrobe and, camera and the studio executives, the network executives, which were Rick and me and the director at the head of the table. I think it was Tom Sharonis at that time was the director. And, uh, you know, and they, then the cast would read through the episode. And so then after the read through, then the uh, senior writing staff and the studio executives and network executives would go off for a notes meeting where the network would give some notes and, you know, um, And I remember Rick and I, before we went to the table reading, we were, I drove in my car from, from, uh, from NBC in Burbank over to the, um, the studios for Seinfeld. We're at this lot called the Radcliffe lot. I don't know if, you, if that might be a well-known Seinfeld trivia. I don't know. But anyway, we, and as we were driving over, we were saying, you know, what are we going to do? I mean, it's like not like it's not like we even have like a basic note of like, oh, you know, you guys decide what you want to do, but this, this, this one beat with, you know, uh, Elaine, it, it doesn't work as well for us. So, you know, this, this is like a fundamentally, we don't get this episode. We don't understand it. It, it doesn't, there's no story. All of the most basic 
things in sitcom writing 101 that executives know and look for. It didn't have. And, um, and Rick and I were in my car and he asked me my opinion. He said, should we let them do this? Should we, should we stop? Just say the network is not going to pay for this. You guys cannot proceed with this episode at that time. You know, there that the, the balance of power was such that theoretically NBC could have said that when Seinfeld became the white hot hit and the cast was on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, there was no NBC executive who was going to say, "Oh, you guys can't do this." You know, it was because they it was so established how great everything was. But if that. But Jeremiah, this is hot off the statue, the phone message, some really funny shows. Hey, <laughs> there it is. I was waiting to <laughs> reveal this to you guys. And then I see Tony, where did you get that? Yeah. So, uh, so shout out to one of our fans. We, we, we had a fan who actually found this in some like uh, a thrift store cast, cast it himself, painted it himself. Oh. Uh, shout out alien Wrangler. I think he's still selling a couple more on, on Etsy, but he sent us this one to, uh, yeah, he, he found well, like a replica. Is the actual, this is an actual one. You can see how it's broken here. Yes. This because in the end at that episode, you know, they freeze frame and it yeah. falls and breaks. And so after the episode, I picked up the pieces and I glued it and no one else is going to want it. And so, um, but that's the exact color and you wouldn't, wouldn't know which is authentic or not. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's um, anyway, I'm sorry, Chris, you no, asked so me good. something and I didn't answer what you asked me. Um, no, we, we had Ray on from the, that episode. Yeah, He's Ray, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, funny. Oh, funny. <laughs> uh, I don't know what my question was. Yeah, it was, <laughs> It was no. something about so yeah so you oh, know, yeah, you no, saying, oh no you were saying they already did have a lot of momentum and the show sure. already it was to yeah. a viewer to, to the it's Wednesday night viewers. viewer and we always we viewers. always preferred it on Wednesday night believe it or yeah, not we're yeah we're Wednesday guys uh, uh, yeah it, it was but you know, so the, the like I say the conversation that Rick and I had could only have happened at that early stage uh, earlier stage in the show's um, evolution and um, and we both agreed that we didn't. Get the Chinese restaurant. I had shared it with um, uh, uh, some colleagues at NBC, some uh, people who I trusted, who I knew really liked Seinfeld and were really disposed to supporting it. And they were like, "Dude, no, I I don't get this. You know, this is this is a misstep. This is definitely a misstep." And so, but ultimately, and again, it's that Rick Ludwin philosophy. He was like, um, "I'm gonna." tell them that it's their decision to make, but I am going to voice my concern. And he voiced his concern. And I remember Larry David was livid. He was so angry. And, and I really thought Larry was out of line. He was like, because he really like Rick Ludwin, you have to understand, is this really kind hearted, sweet guy. He's from a real Midwesterner from Cleveland, just polite, rarely curses, you know, just a, a, a gentleman you know, good guy. And, um, and, and I, I remember uh, at least Larry, I remember vividly because I was sitting in this, in the room where we give notes and there were windows all around on the first floor. And Larry, to his credit, had the courtesy to say, Rick, may I speak to you? And they stepped outside and I could see them like a silent movie. Like when you turn the sound down, I could see them out the window and I see Larry David is like, you know, and, and lacing into poor Rick, who's the nicest, nicest guy and, and doesn't raise his voice. Rick is just listening. 
but even Rick has his, his limits. But um, Larry was so angry and that, 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 and, and Rick didn't say you can't do it. He just said, look, we think that you should try a different approach or a different idea. If this is the type of episode you want to do, let's save it for, you know, once we get our next episode order, let's get past this hurdle, this hump that we're up against. Um, but if you want to do it, you know, Larry and Jerry, it, it's your show. And, 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 you know, to their credit, they said, yeah, this is what we want to do. We do believe in it. And, um, and they did it. And we ultimately supported them in doing it. And we took a lot of heat internally at NBC. It was like as though we were stupid. We weren't sophisticated development executives. How could you let this kind of thing happen? Um, there was a lot of that. Although people with the passage of time tend to forget those positions. I don't. I, I, I remember them well. Um, and uh, and, you know, history bears it out for what it is. But so I don't know if I answered your question in that in any of no, that. You, you did. This is this is fantastic, too. And, and you know, um, we mentioned a few names there and a little earlier on, too. I, I mean, you know, I'm curious um, how much I mean, early on, we talk about the show is not about anything or that, you know, people like to say that or whatever. But like you mentioned, it it actually was about a lot. And, and early on, it you know, especially Larry Charles's episodes, kind of dark. There was, a, there was, a, it was just different than anything else. I mean, aside from the Chinese restaurant, just all of the episodes, the statue, all of these episodes were so much different than your your what was on TV then sitcoms, right? So, I'm curious how much the rest of kind of the supporting cast played a role um, in kind of you you and Rick getting behind the show and kind of seeing their vision with Larry Charles and, and Tom Sharon as the the director who I know you know you bought a car from him right is that right and oh, uh you know I'm sure you, know you have that? some stories about him I think it was in the it was in Seinfeldi I believe oh, I think it was yeah. in uh in Jennifer's book we, we spoke oh, with yeah. her as well but um oh, okay yeah so I mean I, I just you know we're big fans of Larry Charles Peter Melman and, and Tom Sharon's kind of oh, there at Melman the beginning yeah and um you know curious like how much they were, you know, involved. I know, obviously, you, everyone hits their hits their wagon to, to Larry and Jerry ultimately, but you know, without them there, especially Larry Charles and Melman and Sharon's kind of, you know, churning out these episodes and putting their stamp on things, I'm I'm sure that it's something to do with kind of, uh, you know, everyone kind of getting behind the show. Just kind of curious your thoughts on those. All those of those guys, all of them, definitely had impact. I mean, um, uh, I would say. You know, listen, Tom Sharonis was the director in the beginning. He really set the style. He was the most experienced, one of the more experienced television uh, television people outside of the Castle Rock executives. Glenn Padnick had many years experience, obviously, Rob Reiner and Alan Horn. Um, but uh, Tom was was, you know, had the most conventional television experience and the scheduling and rehearsal and setups and you know, Larry and Jerry had virtually none, you know, and here they were starring in the show and, and, and running the show ultimately. Um, um, and, you know, uh, Larry Charles is, uh, you know, as I'm sure, you know, really brilliant uh, writer, but not a, not a, at that time, not an experienced television writer. Um, you know, he was someone who was friends with, I think, uh, Larry David, and he had just that really unique voice and approach that uh, Larry loved and um, and Melman 
is similarly, you know, not a conventional sitcom writer. None of those guys. Um, and no, so, yeah. I mean, Melman was, you know, with Howard Cosell doing Wide World of Sports and Washington Post. And, you know, he's an old Maryland yeah. grad. So we, I, yeah, first, we, I first met uh, Peter. I, I love Peter Melman. Just a great guy and so funny. But I met him. Years, years before, back when I was in New York, that struggling actor wannabe, he was a segment producer on a daytime talk show. Um, and uh, I, I, uh, a friend of mine who was a producer with Melman, um, Sandy Gillis, got me a little bit part on the show. It was a show with Linda Dano and Sharon Gless. I forget the name of the show, but it was it was on Lifetime and it was they, they were the two hosts. And I came on as this, uh, this Mr. Fix-It. Uh, and I would come on and I would explain how to fix a leaky sink because I, I was a building superintendent in New York. And, and that was like before I did that work in L.A. with electronics and stuff. Yeah, that's, how, yeah. that's how I supported myself as an actor as I took care of this apartment building and I did the handyman job. So I came on as a character where I was Mr. Fix-It and I did this thing with a hair lip where I came on and I was like, if you really want to get, if you have a leaky sink, the thing you need to do, it's not very sexy, but what you want to do is you want to, and I would like demonstrate yeah. how, to, how to do very, this. Thing. Uh, and Melman, right Melman was a, a segment producer on the show. And I, I think you'd have to ask him, but I think he thought it was interesting or something that I did. And he and I became friends. And, and this was many years before I was an NBC executive, before he would be on Seinfeld. And then our paths would cross again. Like years later in L.A. Um, I mean, what yeah, what a small world. Yeah, Melman tells us he just happened to bump into Larry at a party, I think in Long Island in the yeah. Hamptons or something. And he said, "Hey, you want to come?" And that was it. He just it was yeah. happenstance. Like it's, and then he gave us some of the some of the greatest episodes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, well, actually. Uh, Jeremiah, so when did you when did you leave? I'm trying to get a timeline of what was it. I 90, was there, yeah, I, I was there for really not even a year, and the, the episodes, as Tony was saying before, it was kind of weird. Episodes one through four, and then I was obviously there for sixteen, which was. But you yeah. guys know the episodes better than I. But um, Keith Hernandez here. The, the bus boy. No, the no, bus boy no. ended season two. The bus boy ended season two. His Chinese restaurant, then bus boy ended season two, and then the note, the truth, the pen, the dog. Those all started season three. Uh, it must have been before season three, or or so. So what happened was for me. Um, so I told you a little bit about the dynamics of network executives. How the the real um, the real uh, what's the word I'm looking for. The more you know, the more mainstream, the, the the thick of it is comedy development or drama development. Now, the comedy development people at NBC were very ensconced and they were very successful and no one was going anywhere. So there was no room if you aspired to do that, to stay at NBC. But due in part to the success of Seinfeld and the halo effect of my being involved with it, I was offered a job as the director of comedy development at Fox, the fledgling Fox broadcasting company, working under an executive who would become one of my best friends. And he would go on to an, a very successful career as an executive himself, Tom Noonan. He was the, the vice president of comedy development. Peter Chernin 
was the president of Fox Broadcasting Company at the time. So I had this opportunity to go from being a manager of specials, variety, uh, and late night programming to director of comedy development. And that was for me. And I think most people would say, oh, that's a big step up. And so I left NBC to go and pursue that. And, and, and it was probably around that end of season two. So what were you like 20, what were you like 28 at the time? You're a young guy. Yeah. You're a young guy. At, uh, yeah. yeah. I was, I was, um, I was 29. I remember cause I just got married around then. So I was like 29, 30. Was Siobhan Fallon at your wedding? Siobhan Fallon introduced me to, on a blind date, to the woman I married and my wife of 30 years. She was, so Siobhan was this platonic close friend that those improv groups and comedy clubs I mentioned in New York, yeah. Siobhan and I were in the same comedy, uh, uh, improv comedy, this now defunct club that no longer exists called Who's On First? It was on First Avenue in like 61st Street or something. And Siobhan and I were really good friends, platonic friends. Um, although I kind of had a crush on her. I always thought she was really so funny. And, uh -huh. uh, um, and, and yeah, and, uh, and then we had moved to LA. And Siobhan and I were going to do a show together. When we were, when we first moved, when we were both in LA, before I got that job at NBC and I was, just and we were going to do the uh, the uh, Siobhan and Jeremiah comedy hour, and it was going to be the two of us doing these sketches and stuff together. We were going to get a little theater, and then I got into a car accident, and I I broke my leg, and I couldn't so I couldn't do it. So Siobhan went on and just did a one woman show, and I ran the lights for her and the sound. I was her sound and lights guy, and it was off of that show that she got cast in Saturday Night Live. Wow. And she's wow. Siobhan. And then obviously she was on with on Seinfeld on season two when you were there. So, yeah. so Siobhan was Siobhan is like one of the funniest, most talented people. And um, but Jerry, yeah, the whole it was definitely as a good like one of her close friends who was gonna do this show with her. And maybe I would have been the dead weight and Siobhan would have been the really funny one. But I mean, I was always like, oh shit. I and I remember she got interviewed by the LA times. Cause her show was really popular. And I, and I, I don't know if she had just already gotten cast and signed for uh, cast on Saturday night live, but a lot of people were paying attention and Siobhan to try to, you know, include me um, said, you really should talk to my friend, Jeremiah, you know, the, to the LA times writer, because um, you know, he knows the show. He knows me. We were going to do the show together. So as a gratuitous bone, this writer interviewed me and asked me for some quotes. And I said a bunch of different stuff. And in the LA Times article, she quotes it as Jeremiah Boss Wang, W-A-N-G. So my friends <laughs> all started calling me, hey, Wang, Wang. That became my nickname because <laughs> it was like my big quote in the LA Times and Siobhan Fallon is going to be a star of Saturday Night Live. And the Wang is like doing the lights and, and sweeping the stage after. But it was sometime after that, that Jim Stein introduced me to Rick Ludwin and I got the job at NBC. And I was one of the people who put Siobhan Fallon, her name out there, to Mark Hirschfeld to get wow. her on Mark's radar. Mark, who you guys have had Mark on. Yeah. He's another awesome, just sweetheart guy, really talented. 
but um, yeah. And, and yeah. then, and then Siobhan got, you know, the role on Seinfeld. She, she's done Lars von Trier movies and also, as you know, all sorts. Yeah. Of we talked to Siobhan. We talked to Siobhan. Yeah, she, yeah. Was, she was wonderful. Um, I'm wondering, you know, we were just talking about, you were there at the end of season two, right. And that was kind of there, you know, was that weird, 13 episode season that everyone talks about it's unheard of in, in, in sitcoms and what have you right so how close in your mind percentage wise or maybe just kind of being there like how close was it to not getting picked up for that like season three i mean were they sweating it was it was it something where you weren't absolutely. sure I mean, absolutely how close i mean it's hard to quantify how close but i can tell you it it, it was not a slam dunk it, it was not Oh my God, this show is going to be what it became. And, and that's a real hump and to get over that season two to season three hump. Any show, anybody who's had a show or show, that's like a big bar because sometimes you can have a show that uh, it, it has the first season. It shows some promise. It's not an out of the gate hit. It, but you know, there's enough, there's been, the network has invested enough in the marketing and, and sales of the show, trying to create an awareness, which is, you know, millions and millions of dollars is spent on that. And so, um, getting that pickup to season two, that's not, in my view, as high a bar as the pickup from season two to season three, mm. because by the end of season two, you're looking as an executive. Okay. Now, where are we at? What's the show generating? Um, ratings wise, you know, which of course has a, a direct right. impact on what the advertising rates are for that show. And, and because by the third season, so that's a very big bar. And I can guarantee you that, um, solid performer though, Seinfeld may have been in many ways, it was not a slam dunk thing. Yeah. Crazy. It's just to think about that. Um, and then, so season four, they obviously do the show within the show, right? We talked about yeah. it earlier, right? Yeah. And uh, famously, you know, uh, they 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 cast, you know, you basically, right? And you you auditioned for that part. I mean, tell us about that. How Jay Crespi came to be when it was yeah. originally going to be, you know, Jeremiah Boz gang. Uh, that that's an interesting story. We'd love to hear. It's that. so funny talking to you guys about this stuff because you know, like you're just saying Jay Crespi, like you know, I've told this story as you know to Jennifer and and people and. Um, you, you know, you kind of have to tell people or put it in context, but you understand. So you set the table perfectly. So I had been, I had, I had left Fox. I was, I stay, I was at Fox for, you know, um, about a year when I left to have this uh, um, guest writer tryout at Saturday night live. Um, and I, um, and, and I left my executive job to do this only to not be offered a staff job in the following season. Um, that's kind of like at the time at Saturday Night Live, that was the way writers could be tried out. You'd get one or two or three episodes as a guest writer, and it would be a look-see opportunity, how they fit in. And, and you know, um, and then maybe if there's an opening in the following season, one of those guest writers might be offered a role, but uh, I was not. And I didn't know uh, what I was going to do, but I came back to L.A., and I got a job on staff on In Living Color as a writer on In Living Color. And so I remember I was in my office at In Living Color and I get a phone call from this um, friend of mine who's an actor, um, you know, very talented actor. It, um, his name is Ron Fassler. If you, you, you would recognize him, he's done a lot of 
Ron has done a lot of different stuff and I haven't spoken to him in years, but so Ron calls me and he says, and I, he's like, Hey, Jeremiah. I'm like, Hey Ron. And what's going on? He's like, dude, I just, I just got out of the weirdest audition. You know, so this is like actor talk, right? To each other. I'm like, oh, really? Like, what was so weird about it? And he's like, well, I was auditioning for a character named Jeremiah Boskang. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he's like, yeah. He goes, over at Seinfeld. He goes, Seinfeld. And so they in, in LA and New York, they have these things called the breakdowns, the casting breakdowns that go out to all the different agents each day. And it lists the the shows that are casting the character and so it'll say you know you know uh, you know Susan blah 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 leggy blonde twenties you know you know Jer and then and then there was apparently a line that said Jeremiah Boskang probably short bald executive type or something I don't know I really don't know what the <laughs> description was Ron is not bald so it didn't specify bald but probably said character actor Jeremiah Boskang young executive they were used my name in the breakdown I was like what the and so I, he was like I was like well thanks for telling me Ron so I hang up with him and I call um Jerry's manager George Shapiro right one of the I know I keep using this term when I'm talking about Seinfeld people, but truly one of the nicest people. There were a lot of people on that show associated on every level who were just really nice, good people. And George was like the epitome of that, the sweetest, really good guy. And he just passed away recently, very sadly. But so I called George and I said, hey, George. And, and now I hadn't spoken to these guys in like a couple of years, because remember, I left NBC. I worked at Fox and I left Fox. and. Now I'm on in living color. So maybe it was 18 months or something. And, and I was like, yeah. And by now the show is a bonafide hit from the time I left. When I left, it was like the dead weight had left <laughs> and now the show takes off and it's a really huge hit real and building. And um, I said to George, Hey, I hear there's a Jeremiah Boskang character. And he's like, Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and he, and he tells me the story he goes, the guys are going to arc out over the course of the season, how they develop the show, you know, with you and Rick. And, and, um, and so I'm like, George, George, how about Jeremiah Boskang as himself? <laughs> and so there's this like, like, it's like Kramer wanted to play Kramer, right? Yes. A bit. yes. <laughs> and so there's this like, Science goes, oh, well, uh, you know, we didn't, uh, are you an actor? And I'm like, George, George, I toured with Second City. I, I'm writing for In Living Color right now. I mean, I, 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 yeah. And he said, well, all right, let me talk to the guys. I'll get back to you. Hangs up. Maybe like an hour and a half later, I get a phone call. It's George Shapiro. He's like, hey, uh, I talked to the guys, meaning Larry and Jerry. And if you'd like to come in and audition, uh, they would see you for today. I'm like, audition? <laughs> I, I, I mean, the character is named <laughs> Jeremiah Boskin. I mean, is, uh, do you need a French accent or something? I mean, what do what do it? And so, and so he goes, but the thing is, you know, they're seeing people today. The episode tapes later this week because it was just a, a featured part. It wasn't like any bit. And so he said, so you'd have to get down to the, you'd have to get over to Radcliffe, the, the studios. So I'm over it in Living Colors on the other side of town. So I'm like, I'm on my way. I get in my car, Tom Sharonis's car, old car, and I'm driving cross town and I, and I still have the sticker. So one of the ways that you could drive onto a lot back then, now I'm sure security with 
9-11, everything has changed. But back then, you just have a little decal in your window. I still had that on my on my car. So I pull up. The guy just waves to me, lets me drive right in. And I pull up to the studio, the, the offices where Seinfeld was. And it was so weird because when I was there, Seinfeld was this little, very small budget, you know, modest budget sitcom. It wasn't like a bit. So they were in the same studio, but it was completely renovated as a big sign that says Seinfeld, new shrubberies planted, all shrubs and bushes in front. And like, I, I think it's now a three-story building. It was, a two, you know, it just, oh my God. And as, but I park and I, I go in and there's this, you, you go in and there's a, re- a receptionist, <coughs> excuse me, before you go anywhere. And it's really cute girl. And she's like, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm here to audition. And she's, oh, that's casting. That's the third door down. And I'm like, casting? It used to just be, oh, yeah, someone will be out to see you in a few minutes. Now there are all these different rooms and offices. <laughs> so I go down this hall. I go in another door. And it's the casting office. And there's another really cute receptionist. And there are a couple of guys sitting around the room on couches and uh, have you ever heard the term? I'm sorry if I'm patronizing you, but sides. So sides are the excerpts from the script that the actor is going to need for the audition for that scene. So they're all looking at their sides. It's one or two script pieces. And they're like four or five, three, five guys sitting around really quiet. And when I come in, I'm a little out of breath. I go up to the reception and she's like, can I help you? And I said, yeah, hi, I'm here to audition for the episode. She goes, okay. She said, what, um, what is your name? And she has a list that she's checking names on. So I go, uh, Jeremiah Boskang. And she goes, no, 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 not the character's name. What is your name? And so I go, no, I said, actually, I am Jeremiah Boskang. And like, <laughs> she's like looking at me like, you know, and like, oh, one of these method actors, I am Julius Caesar, you know, and it's like, and all the guys like who are sitting around, they can hear what I'm saying. And they're all like, you know, what a douchebag. The guy comes in and says, I am the character, you know, I am. So she goes, okay, like she's humoring me. Okay, Jeremiah. And she hands me the, the sides and she goes, they'll call you when they're ready. And so I go to sit down. The guys all move away from me. No one wants to sit near this asshole who's saying, I am, you know, uh, you know, I am whatever. Oh, so I'm looking at the sides and I'm sitting there. And then the, this door to another room opens up and an actor comes out. And I see inside the room, I, I, I see there's Larry and Jerry and I think Glenn Padnick. And, and they see me and I hadn't seen him for a couple of years. And I'm like, they come out and they're really friendly. They're like, Jeremiah, and we're hugging each other. And on <laughs> cue, all the guys sitting around, like, they throw their sides up in the air, like, fuck, <laughs> you know, oh, here's Jeremiah Boskin. And they okay. take me right in and I go in and, what have you been up to? What have you been doing? And I'm telling them the whole story about, you know, Saturday Night Live and how it, I, I, it, it was a bust and I didn't do well. And, um, but now I'm in living color and, you know, and they're like, Oh, wow. And, and you know, they, they, and, uh, you know, they're obviously the show's doing really well. And if you remember the part of the bit with that character, at least in the early drafts in the script that, um, Jason George was doing this thing where he'd be like, Chris O'Hara, O H 
A R A, you know, and yeah, he'd like yeah, spell things. Names. Yeah, yeah. And 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 then the so that's what he would do. So the thing was in the scene, it was like three lines that I was practicing. They were like Jeremiah Boskang. Uh, I'd be like, hi, Jeremiah Boskang. They'd Boskang, B O S G A N G. And my line was like, that's right. That's all I had to say. That's right. And these fucking guys had me do it. Like Larry, I don't know if, to this day if they were fucking with me. Like, Larry was like, all right, now can you do it like you're a little nervous? And I'm like, uh, th- th- that's right. All right, well, good. Now can you do it like you're angry? And they're like, B-O-S-G-A-N-G. I'm like, that's right. And like, okay, now can you do it like you're really happy? They just made me do it. Like, that's right. Like 20 different ways. But I was like, oh, this is fun, you know, whatever. And so we're like, oh, thanks a lot. It's great to see you, blah, blah, blah. And I'm walking out and going, I got this. I got this. Right. It's, it's Jeremiah Boskang. It's like, that's right. What? And I go back to my office and I'm waiting for the phone to ring. Because like, I'm, I, I got to know, you know, it's going to tape this week. What time? Where do I go? Do I have to go to wardrobe? Do I bring my own wardrobe? No phone call. So the next day I called George Shapiro. And I'm like, George, you know, hey. And he's like, hey, Jeremiah. I'm like, uh, <laughs> I think I said, oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't want to be presumptuous, but what do I do? You know, I'm not sure, like, do I have to fill any forms out or do <laughs> where do I go? And he's like, oh, nobody called you. The guys didn't call you. And I was like, no, nobody called me. He said, oh, I'm sorry, Jerry. I know Jerry wanted to call you and Larry, they were going to call you. And I was like, oh, and he said, yeah, you know, they might want to go in a different direction with the Jeremiah Boskang character. In fact, they're going to change the name there. It's not going to be Jeremiah Boskang. And and you know what? (coughs) They might do something with some of these executive characters like that's a little offbeat or weird. And they don't want any kind of an implication that the real people did it or the real people were involved. And so my big Hollywood story is I couldn't get cast to play myself on a television show. That's that kind of speaks volumes about my whole career. <laughs> but um, the, truth, the truth is, in all fairness to the guys, you might remember. So the Bob Balaban, the actor yeah. who played the character loosely based on Warren Littlefield, actually becomes infatuated, as you might, with Elaine. Right. Yes. Yeah, right. And that never happened. That was the kind of twist. They didn't do it with the Jay Crespi character, but they did do it with um, um, the, the network head character. And so, um, and so, um, uh, yeah. And so years later, I remember I, I saw Jerry um, and, and he was like, Hey, by the way, you know, I'm sorry about that thing. Like he knew that it didn't work out and getting cast. I said, Oh, whatever. You know, he said, you know, Jeremiah, the problem was you just weren't Jeremiah Boskang enough. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. But, that's a that's a great story. And another, the other takeaway from from when you came on set, I mean, Seinfeld had pretty girls as his girlfriend, and it seems like as receptionist at the uh, Radner slot. But anyway, so yeah. Jeremy, if you took off your executive hat and just as a fan of the show, because that's that's what we are, frankly, right. we try to analyze best we can. But you know. Seasons one, in my opinion, the season, the, the show could have ended after season five and I would have been happy. You know, I think Sharon is leaving, Larry Charles leaving. And then to another degree, obviously, when Larry left after season seven, it just became a completely different show. Would love your take on kind of how you saw the show 
evolve, good or bad. I mean, we all have our own opinions on it. Um, for us, it became a little too cartoonish. It's still funny, but just a different type of show. Would love your kind of take, even I mean, as an executive or a fan, based on that. Well, you 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 just characterized it um, so perfectly it, it, that it was that that the show evolved and it, it changed. Some people I know prefer the later um, seasons, uh, but I think that part of what made that show successful where it was able to um, run for the, the seasons it did was that it did evolve and it did change. And I think in a similar way, you see a, a similar kind of dynamic with musical artists. Like in the, in the music business, there's a term career artist. Um, that's like not just someone who, you know, has an album or two that are hits, but who really like, has a career and evolves as an artist and, and, and over years and in, in television, the lifespan might be even shorter uh, for a career, but for a show to run, like you say, beyond five seasons, six, seven, eight seasons, uh, it has to evolve in some ways. And that's why you see new characters are introduced or things and in Seinfeld's case, there was an evolution in just the kinds of storytelling and the the, the writing that came in, the writers that came in. Uh, and for somebody who really loved the early, look, there are people who hate the early episodes and think they're really boring and, as you know, like, or just awkward or whatever. Uh, and then there are people who love them. So it's it's such a, a subjective thing. But the fact is that... Um, it had picked up, it, it already was so popular and so successful. Um, and you see that with a lot of shows, uh, a lot of series, not just co comedies, but by the time they get into, there's that wave of the early adapters who get a show and love it early on. Even Curb Your Enthusiasm is, a, is another great example. Yeah. Like there were people who didn't care for it in the early, oh, he's an embittered or whatever, they would be dismissive. But other people are like, no, this is really good and it's really different. And 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 it it, it grew and it got stronger. And, and now there are some people who will say in the later episodes, maybe using some of that same uh, criticism, oh, it's cartoony or it's a little over the top. But other people who love it and say, oh, no, I love all the crisscrossing stories and the way it ties together and the characters. Yes, some of them are over the top, you know, but I love Leon or I love whoever it is. So I know I'm not being very committal here, but um, I'm obviously partial to the early days because that's when I was on the show and I, right. I have really fond memories. But I look at later episodes and I enjoy them. And, um, and, uh, you know, I'm, some of my really close friends were writer producers in later years, Tom Gamel and Max Pross, who, again, yeah. I know, knew those guys way before I was at, when I was an intern at late night with David Letterman. That's where I met Steve Tom O'Donnell Black. too, right? Wasn't, did you know Steve O'Donnell Letterman also? Steve O'Donnell was, was at, um, um, I met Steve at, at late night with David Letterman when he was a, a cub writer before he became the head writer, when right. he was just the new guy who joined the writing staff. Um, and uh, so I, I really, you know, and there are some personal stories between me and Tom and me and Max that became episodes of Seinfeld. And it's just, it had nothing to do with my being an executive. It's just because 
I knew them, and 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 one of the things Larry David loves to do is mine. Yeah. What, do you actual... have an example of one of those? Oh, sure. <laughs> okay, so here's a famous example, and this is not something that I think I've never shared this before. So, but have you had Tom and I, I should know this, but have you had Tom and Max on? Not yet. Oh. <laughs> we'll say that. Well, not you yet. definitely. They would be awesome. They're really great guys, and and they have such incredible experience and they have everything from the the early Saturday Night Live when Bill Murray was in the cast that was one of their first writing jobs out of college to being the uh, early first uh writers on um Late Night with David Letterman to then you know writing for and producing the Simpsons and Seinfeld I mean they're really brilliant guys so um you should definitely get them uh, to come on they would be great in any event they were, uh, I could, I'll, I'll say something to, to, they might be a little shy about it. I don't know, but they're really good guys and they'd be great. Anyway, so Tom and, and, and his wife, Sandy Gillis, who was the producer of that um, daytime talk show I mentioned, I've known them, you know, for, I don't know, <laughs> like 40 years. Anyway, I, um, uh, and I was always, you know, really good friends with them. And, and they moved to, um, they moved to LA. Oh, and they were writers on the early, uh, it's uh, the Gary Shandling show. That's another cr- incredible credit that Gamble and Pross have. Yeah, anyway, so Tom and Sandy get married in LA. And I was just a, a building super in, a, in New York, you know, working in those comedy clubs with Siobhan Fallon and Tom and Sandy were like, Oh, well, you know, you can stay in our house. We'll, we'll fly you out here. So I stayed in their house then when they were getting married and, um, and I was at the wedding. And then they knew Tom knew that I was always really like into motorcycles and, and cars. He said, can you help me find a car? We need another car in LA. You got to have. And so I was like, Oh, you know, I, I think it was maybe on that trip or another time I went out there. And so I was helped them to find a car. And, um, and I knew Tom Gamble's style. Like he's, he's, uh, you know, um, really funny and, and he loves, you know, quirky stuff. And so I found this car, which was this um, Chrysler LeBaron. Um, <laughs> and um, it had like this fake wood paneling on the side of the car. And I found it at this dealership and I was looking at him like, I think Tom would really like this car. And, I, you know, he was paying me to find him a car. And the salesman at the place of, uh, where this was on the lot was like, yeah, well, you know, this car belonged to John Voigt. And I was like, really? And he said, oh, yeah, this is John or John Voigt's mother's car. He, it was some bullshit line. The guy was telling me and I was this like impressionable actor. I'm like, oh, really? So I go back I, and I tell Tom about it. And, it, and he's like, it sounds good to me. And I'm, it's like, yeah, it's a Chrysler Baron convertible. It's great for L.A. And so Tom was like, OK, let's buy it. So we bought the car. And that was Tom Gamble's car that he was driving around for years. And then years later. Yeah, I hadn't even I wasn't even an NBC executive. I was still living in New York. Um, Tom and Max are writing for Seinfeld. And I think they must have pitched out to Larry David, like, oh, yeah, we once bought this car and the salesman told us it was John Voigt's mother's or, you know. And that became that whole storyline 
in Seinfeld, you guys will know the episodes better the than mom, I. Yeah. The mom and pop and, story, yeah. And they used driving the, around and just used John Voight. Yeah. And they got they got John Voight, and John, John Voight said it was total bullshit. No, no one in my family ever owned this car. <laughs> but it was like um we they used Tom's actual uh LeBaron. That 89 car, LeBaron. That yeah, car was the car that I got for Tom and that George made famous. And um, so that's like a little uh, story. I don't know if it's any means anything. That, oh, that's incredible. That is amazing. Jeremiah, th- these stories are great. I think what, what made Seinfeld great was its unselfishness. And you could tell you being on that show, you you kind of you know bleed unselfishness as well. All the credit oh. you're giving to your predecessors and and Rick and uh Brandon and Warren and Larry and Jerry. I mean it's it it shows and you could tell that that seeped that seeped on set. It seeped across the whole show and that that's why the show was great. So we we can't thank you enough for, oh my for God. thank I, you so I, much for trip down memory lane with us. Oh my God guys I, I'm sorry that it, it took so long for us to finally get together. I really um I appreciate your patience and you even wanting, to, it's an honor for me for what you've built to be included with um, for you. You clearly have such passion for the, the subject matter and care about it and, and that you would include me in, in it. Um, um, uh, I, I just wanted to say uh, a couple of other little things that relate to your show. I don't know. Are we out of time? Yeah, no, go ahead. So one of the things I wanted to say, cause we talked about Siobhan, another person you interviewed who we kind of touched on was Tim Stack. Yeah, yes. of course. Yeah, yeah, so of course. Son of the Tim beach. Stack, yeah. Tim Stack was loved, a, loved is, him. A, is a writing partner with Jim Stein and Dave Morgison. The three of them together created Son of the Beach, which later, much later in my career, when I was an executive at FX, I developed that show. And Tim is, you know, awesome. And um Howard, the whole thing. It's just so funny that there was that that connection. And um, and then the only other thing I was going to mention, just to make a a, a shameless um, self um, promotion, was so uh, back in the mid '90s, I made this movie, this independent f- feature film, um, which basically it's the most self indulgent idea possible because it was basically my story of going from this rags to riches to rags story of. Um, building superintendent to network executive success, and then ultimately going back to quote unquote, pursue the dream. And I made this movie. I financed it myself. It never got distribution, but the cast of Seinfeld, Jerry, Julia, Jason, Michael, um, George Shapiro and Howard West, they're all in it in little cameo appearances and stuff. And I didn't know, I just thought, uh, and I know this again is very self-indulgent, but I know your uh, audience loves Seinfeld. I have a trailer that's like a minute long or maybe 80, 90 seconds long. I don't know if we can on on Zoom, if I can do a share screen, but if you're curious and if, if we don't have time for it, then forget about it. But if you we could definitely to, do it, I could. I, and I, you'd only might find it interesting just because you'll see very briefly uh, everybody That's, from Seinfeld. In yeah, it. Yeah. What was the name of this, Jeremiah? Yeah, what was the, name? the the name of the movie? Yeah. So it uh, uh, it's had two different incarnations. It initially was called Good Money, and then oh, the the, the current version is called Show Me Your Potatoes. 
Have you ever made a choice or a decision and then later you say to yourself, why the hell did I do that? So how's your career going, J-Man? <laughs> Things with me are going G-R-E-A-T. My career has taken off in a wonderful, if a bit unexpected, new direction. I don't know what I've done to mislead you, but I am not a prostitute. I mean, is there anything you can personally do? Um, no. There's nothing I can personally do, but... Well, the next thing I know, I'm working at NBC. I couldn't believe it. I was working with people who were becoming household names. I like my face. It helps me smile. I don't like your face. I don't like your face at no, all. No, 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 no. I know the ratings haven't been that great. Well, that depends on how you look at the ratings. So I, I think I really got something for you this time. Hey, fantastic. No cast at all. I just <laughs> wanted to be me. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm kind of looking right, for. You right. The California Raisins get an apartment in London. Okay, I'm being please, a baby? Okay, please, yeah, guys. you're being a baby. The problem was... Are you the one with the problem? I'd always wanted to be an actor and a writer. I very much like you, and I would like to spend some quality time with you. Yes. Ah. One more. One more. Ah. Well, I had to talk to somebody about all this. What are you thinking? Jesus, you guys, come on! But who? So that's the great trip. All right, yeah. That was and awesome. Siobhan Fallon. Siobhan Fallon plays herself. She's in the in the movie. That was incredible. That's you awesome. had, had so many cameos. I mean, that was that was. Yeah, so, well, so there was so George Shapiro and Howard West. Yeah, they were both in there with, with the comedian Wayne Cotter, who was a client of theirs. Uh, Tom Noonan was in that. Brandon Tartikoff, you noticed. Uh, the, the way I always thought about it was, even if you hated my writing and my acting and the just the combination of all these people and dick cavett dick yeah. cavett in his underwear <laughs> yeah. getting i mean conan, cavett is early awesome. conan yeah. oh conan o'brien and andy richter uh, i mean did uh, you know conan did you know conan from the the snl tryout or no or i late, i knew late, conan uh i i didn't know Con i don't know conan well but when i was an executive at fox conan was just coming off of saturday night live with his then writing partner Greg Daniels. Does that name mean? Oh anything? yeah, Greg Daniels is huge. I mean, Greg Went Daniels is one yeah, the biggest, all, yeah, the Office, King of the I Hill. Mean, I oh, think he's involved in King of the Hill. Yeah, like, but and I, I remember calling Conan directly because I didn't even know who his agent was or anything. Just saying, "Hey, I'm Jeremiah Bosgang. I work at Fox. I'd love to develop something with you." And um, and and he and and then we bumped into each other on the Fox lot. He was a writer for The Simpsons writer producer yeah so he kind of knew who i was and he knew i had worked at nbc but the scene that he's in in that movie he and andy weren't supposed to do it it was supposed to be i had just gotten permission to film this little scene in nbc on the set of late night which conan was host he was host of late night at that time and i and so i i was the scene was supposed to be this really low level kitty show that I was a writer for this shitty kitty show where the, the hosts would get in fights, which was loosely based <laughs> on my first writing job into television where I was writing for this, this kid's show that was, and, um, and one of the two actors, I, I, the guys I lined up were these two um, um, 
Spanish speaking guys, not actors who worked in my building where I lived in the city at the time. They were guys who, uh, who were just my friends. And I thought it would be funny if it was like two guys and they would break into a fight yelling at each other in Spanish. One of the guys never shows up at NBC. I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do? I don't, I, I can't do the scene. And there's Conan and Andy in their dressing rooms. They had just wrapped a taping. And, um, and so I just went up to him and Conan was like, Hey, like, I don't think he even remembered my name. He was like, <laughs> Hey man, Hey, how you doing? I'm like, good, good. And I just quickly pitched it to them. I said, guys, I'm shooting this independent film. It's this little scene. It's with these two kiddie show performers. They get in a fight. Any chance that you two guys would do it. And Conan just looked at Andy and Andy looked at Conan and said, what the hell? Yeah, sure. We'll do it. So I give them the outfits that I rented those clown outfits. We go on their stage we we just run it once. We just do it, and we we film it on sixteen millimeter film. Boom! That was it. And and then wow, Conan and Andy um, and it was so cool that they did that favor for me. It's that's the type of guy Conan O'Brien and, and and Andy Richter were like. They didn't know really me very well. And yeah, and well, he I know he was I know Conan was tight with Rick. So I mean, I goes to show you. You know, I don't know if he knew about that connection that I had at the time. I, I I don't know if he put that together or not. But yes, Conan really did like Rick a lot, and he really respected him. As did Rick respect Conan. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, so wow. I, wow, I, I'm so sorry to shoehorn that in no, at the end that was and try to like. Take and that's like a pri that's never before. I mean, that's not you don't have that public anywhere, huh? You don't no, I don't. I mean. I, I was in some like There's so much um, talent on that on that piece. It's so you know it's so well done. I know, done. I, I, you know, like I always it, it was always so disappointing to me because now bear in mind back when I made that movie, uh, it was a theatrical distribution was the only thing you could hope for as an indie filmmaker. Now there's Netflix and Amazon. Right, and right. Hulu. Do you own it? Do you own the movie? I or do. I own it. I have so signed can, releases. So signed you can put releases. it out anywhere right now. You can put it on YouTube. I mean, you when you look at, I could try that. But when you look at some of the stuff on 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 these um, services, it's not like everything is, you know, gold. I mean, a piece of crap like my movie would fit in perfectly on, you know, Amazon or Netflix. Or So if there are any Amazon or Netflix or Hulu acquisitions executives who are watching your podcast, maybe they'll see this and they'll, they'll reach out. And in the, mean, in the meantime, if you're in Jersey, I got a projector. We'll go out in the backyard. We'll have some fun. Do it. it. Uh, you just let me know what you want me to be there. <laughs> awesome. Well, Jeremiah, like I said, man, it's this great. has been great. Incredible. Um, well, thank you, guys. You guys are can't thank you enough. really fun. And uh, thank you for having me. And thanks for letting me enjoy even further in my life the halo effect of a connection to the greatest show one of the greatest shows in television history. So for sure. Yeah, thank Thanks you so again. Much, and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch for sure. I look forward to it. Thanks guys. Stay safe.